Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Brenna, you have survived two full weeks of the Hunger Games. (laughs) The odds were never in my favor. (laughs) (laughs) I bequeath you this ceremonial songbird. Oh, I wanted a snake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And your reward, actually, in truth, shall be, we shall talk about female friendships and the sisterhood of the traveling palms. Oh, I really enjoyed revisiting this book. With adult eyes, it definitely feels its age in a lot of ways. A little bit. But I really just enjoyed, I don't know, nobody kills anybody else. (laughs) And... <laughs> There's a surprising lack of murder in this book, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I did. I liked the focus on female friendships and I liked the stakes, the sort of normal real world stakes. I was here for it, for sure. Right. I mean, this is why we shake things up on a weekly basis so that we can dip into some dystopia, we can dip into some action, and then we can also step out of it and just enjoy some real life low-key stakes. Yes. Yeah. And I shouldn't say there's low stakes. Like, there's a lot in this book about bodily autonomy and illness and family relationships, all things that do totally matter. Mm -hmm. But they're at a human scale, and I apparently really needed that this week. Fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a history with this text, like you have read it before. Mm -hmm. And I think you even mentioned a couple weeks ago that this was kind of a seminal text for you as a child or a teenage girl. teenage. Yeah, I mean, it came out when I was in first year university and I read it right around that time. So, I mean, I'm not much older than the girls in The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, like three or four years Mm-hmm. Particularly if we're talking about the movie where all the actresses are 21 to 24 yeah. years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think they're aged up in the movie anyway, aren't they? They're 15 in the book and 17 in the movie, I think. I hope so. But yeah, so I read it pretty close to when it came out and I devoured all the sequels as they came out. I really like Anne Brasheras and her way of talking about especially teenage friendships as though they are as important as they are <laughs> to teenagers. Right, yeah. There's something really great about how seminal each of the... We're not supposed to use that word anymore, are we? Let me try again. Yeah, I was actually just thinking of that. As I said it, I thought, oh, wow, that's a very masculine term. <laughs> Boo. I'm going to try that again. Um, Do it. There's something lovely about how pivotal the relationships are in the girls' lives. I think the film actually makes that even more explicit than the book does, because in the book... They're 15, and they do still rely on their parents in many, many ways. Right. In the film, the parents are all but written out Mm -hmm. in favor of the girls being the catalyst in each other's lives. Um, But I think it works. Uh, Yeah, so no, I really do. I feel quite strongly about this book, just in terms of like a sort of nostalgia, like rereading it. Well, I listened to the audiobook, I think I mentioned last time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was very much like being transported back to being about 19 years old. All the all the good and the ill that that right. <laughs> brings with it. Yeah. But you've never read this book before, right, Joe? So this was new? I have not read it. I had not seen the films, but I was obviously aware of their existence. I was intrigued by this because I very much felt like I was not the target demographic. Like, this mm. is a book series for girls, mm-hmm. about girls. Mm-hmm. And, well, I don't think that that ever precludes people from enjoying or even connecting with a text it felt like there's a certain level of magic that boy friendships don't really achieve in the same way that girl friendships often do. Mm -hmm. But I definitely found these characters compelling. I was just telling you off the air that I definitely connected more with a couple of them and less so with a couple of them. So it became a bit of a challenge when I very quickly realized that this is a book with four separate standalone narratives. Mm -hmm. And then obviously that connective tissue of the magic of the pants that comes into play and their letters and that kind of stuff. I should also note that I had a very terrible e-copy, which made it very difficult to distinguish when we were switching from girl to girl. Oh no. (laughs) So there were frequently times where I had to stop and be like, oh, okay, we're not with Lena anymore. Now we're with Tibby. (laughs) Because this didn't make any sense for about a half page. I will say, this is not a book, I don't think, where the voices are particularly strong across the characters. No, no. 
it was actually one of my biggest complaints is that all four of the girls sound nearly identical. They do. And structurally, she uses design, like book design to to make the distinction. But I also had a problem with that listening to the audiobook where it's just one voice, literally Mm -hmm. one voice doing all four characters stories. It didn't always work for me. And it it was interesting to listen to the audiobook because that made it so clear to me that the voices are not particularly distinct or unique, which is a shame because their experiences are. Yes. Yeah, like that's the whole value of this text is that previously they have shared everything and they've been very like-minded. And then this is that first summer, right, where they're going off and they're having these very specifically unique experiences that the other ones aren't. And can't, right, that are unique to their circumstances and unique to who they are as people. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I think a real strength of the book is allowing the four girls to be distinct people and showing how the friendship shapes those distinct identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that problem with voice lets the book down a little bit, for sure. Yes, I felt that too. Yeah. So should we get into the plot? Yes, I did want to clarify very quickly before we get too much further, though. So obviously, this is a series of books. And mm-hmm. if we're interested, we could do subsequent entries. I have not looked to see what happens in successive books or films, so I apologize in advance if I talk about like, oh, I really didn't want Carmen to get together with Paul, and then she does get together with him in book two. Like, I don't know that, so I might make mistakes. And I have all but forgotten, so (laughs) (laughs) that's a good, I'm going to screw that up too. Sure. And I think only the second summer has a sequel, right? Yeah, I think there was talk about a third movie, and I don't think it ever got off the ground. Well, the girls got older. I mean, I think at this point, the only one they could make now is Sisterhood Everlasting, which is one that revisits them in their young adulthood. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that's the last. It's the fifth book in the series. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize there were five. (laughs) There are, yeah, yeah. So for the record, it's Second Summer of the Sisterhood, then Girls in Pants, then Forever in Blue, and then finally Sisterhood Everlasting. And these are books by Anne Brashares, beginning in 2001 with The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. And then Sisterhood Everlasting takes us into 2011. So she uh, she spends a decade, basically, with these girls and writing these stories. It's kind of crazy, right? It is. When you think about it as a creative artist, dedicating that much time to telling, not a story, but, you know, these stories. Four stories. (laughs) (laughs) So our protagonists are Lena, Tibby, Bridget, and Carmen. And Carmen is our narrator for this volume. I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure a different girl takes over narrating each of the other books, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Someone who's read them more recently than me could correct me on that, but I think so. But for this one, it's Carmen. Carmen is Puerto Rican. Yep. Half Puerto Rican, I guess. And living with her mom, her dad has left uh, some years before. And he's pretty good about visiting every Christmas or whenever he's in the area for work. But she hasn't had kind of a sustained time with him in many years and now she's off to spend the summer in South Carolina and she's so excited to get to spend dedicated focus time with her dad. Mm -hmm. She very clearly idolizes him at the expense of her relationship with her mom who she seems to take for granted. Definitely. There's definitely that dynamic of the parent who stays is the parent who gets punished and Carmen's story is about realizing that and reversing some of the choices that she's made. Mm Mm-hmm. Bridget Vreeland is our sort of all-American girl soccer star, and she is on her way to soccer camp in Mexico for the summer. She's excited. Uh, The girls are teasing her a little bit because it's an all-girls camp, and she's a bit boy crazy. Mm -hmm. When she arrives at camp, though, she gets the eye of uh, one of the coaches, Eric. And so her story is very much wrapped up in the choices she makes around Eric, but All of that is informed by the fact that Bridget has lost her mom. Uh, Her mom suffered from severe depression and died by suicide. And so Bridget's story is really about navigating some feelings of abandonment and also some anxiety about her own mental health as a result of the choices her mom has made. Mm -hmm. That comes through, I think, a lot more strongly in the film. Yeah. The book, I felt like it was much more about the illicit romance because, of course, Eric is actually a first-year university student, which means we're talking statutory rape here, folks. Yes, but also, um, I think, yes, I agree with you. I think some (laughs) of what I think about this is informed by the later books now now that I'm having to say it out loud. Okay. But Bridget takes risks constantly. 
without a lot of thought for the consequences. And there's a strong suggestion in the book that she has, this is the way she has always behaved, but that the stakes in the choices that she's making have really ramped up since her mother's passing. Yes. Yep. I can agree with that. Tibby Rollins is the one who is sort of stuck at home (laughs) for the summer while everybody else goes away to have adventures. So she's taken a job at a local like big box drugstore. Yep. And she's trying to earn money to make kind of like this documentary about sad and tragic lives like a documentary about losers that she's making which really speaks to her mindset yeah <laughs> she's kind I'm of related one of my to favorite characters. Yeah, me too <laughs> just like oh she's kind of a dick yeah. at times and she's... i connect with that um and tibby's life is sort of turned upside down when she ends up befriending a 12 year old who passes out at her work and she goes with her in the ambulance to the hospital because she doesn't know if anybody else is going to help this girl and it turns out that bailey has leukemia and her parents and she have made the decision to stop treatment because no treatments have worked and they want her to have the opportunity to live a little bit and have Mm -hmm. a sort of normal teenagehood for a few months and so Tibby has kind of unwittingly been cast in the role of providing this normalcy for (laughs) Bailey. I would say that this plot line is the most troubling to my adult eyes. Okay. Bailey definitely exists to be an inspiration. Yes. The construction of Bailey's character is really ableist. She's there to push forward the sort of self-discovery of Tibby and not really a character in her own right. And she sort of falls into all those traps that we talked about when we did The Fault in Our Stars, right? This right. idea of like the quote unquote cancer kid narrative and the role of sort of being mm-hmm. brave in the face of... Oh, yeah. She's a beacon. She's an inspiration. She has no other issues except for the fact that she will inevitably die. Yeah, exactly. And she doesn't really get to be a real person. And it's funny because I definitely did not get that when I was 19. <laughs> when I was 19, right. I just bawled alongside Tibby. Sure. I still did this time. I definitely cried, especially in the movie. Oh, the movie hit me right in the feels. Yeah, and there's been a lot of criticism of the movie and that scene in particular for being emotionally manipulative and uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah. But as I, I read it as an adult with far more awareness of like disability studies and the way sickness is depicted on the page and it, it makes me cringe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite appropriate, but I almost got a junior manic pixie dream girl vibe off yes. of her. I did too. I did too, particularly, uh, yeah, the way she kind of lives freely in a way that Tibby's not able to. Mm-hmm. And she can transgress boundaries, like she can literally connect with anybody. It's almost like she's a little alien, where she she's unlocked the code to getting close to literally mm-hmm. any human being she wants to. <laughs> yes, and I think the book in general is really guilty of using sickness as motivation in the lives of well people using tragedy in general as motivation in the lives of people untouched by tragedy. So I'm thinking about the way sort of Lena looks almost jealously at Costas, who has lost his parents, and I'll get to that narrative in a second, Mm. or Bridget, whose mom has died by suicide. And she sort of sees it as she sort of feels sorry for herself and her inability to live freely, given what these people are able to do with their lives. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's troubling. Yeah, I was actually, as you were saying it, I was thinking it's almost like the people whose lives are touched by tragedy are given a special priority in the Mm -hmm. text, like they have lived more, they have suffered more, and therefore Mm -hmm. we should give them more weight, Mm -hmm. or yeah, consider them special in some regard. And it's like, that's a little gross. It is a little gross. very uncomfortable. And it's a little gross in the way the other characters sort of use that as motivation in their own lives. Like, I find it quite troubling. Mm Mm-hmm. And I sort of foreshadowed the last narrative, which is Lena's narrative. Lena goes off to Greece with her sister Effie to get to know grandparents who she has never met. Her parents are Greek immigrants. And she is uptight and repressed and very shy. And she kind of gets undone by this local boy named Kostas, who in the book version sees her skinny dipping one day, or I think... She's even just in her underwear. I can't actually remember. But he he sees her swimming and she thinks he's spying on her. Mm-hmm. And she is so overcome by shame that she runs back to her grandmother. Her grandmother thinks the worst because she doesn't actually, she's not able to actually say what has happened. So her grandmother thinks that Costas has hurt her. Yeah. And uh, it starts this huge feud between these families. And it's important because Costas has returned to Greece as a young boy after the death of his parents and sibling in America. Mm -hmm. And he is very much the community's boy. He's 
sort of one of the few young people in this community of elderly people. They adore him. Yeah. He does everything for his grandparents and the other elderly people in their village. He's a quintessential good boy. He is. And Lena kind of undoes his reputation in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of sits back and says, yeah. oh, I really should say something, but I can't. I don't know how to say anything about <laughs> like, Lena, open your mouth. <laughs> open your mouth, Lena. That's basically, I yell that at the book a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so her narrative is about sort of overcoming her own walls and opening herself up to the kinds of experiences that someone like Kostas can provide her with. But it's less of a romance narrative than something like what Bridget is experiencing with Eric. Yeah, I mean, each girl has an issue that she needs to undo or better understand in order to grow and move forward. Mm -hmm. And I felt like with Lena, she's very much wrapped up with a visual aesthetic. Like, it's important that she's a painter because she's seeing everything through a visual lens. Yeah. So her issues are tied primarily to her own body image because she's very beautiful. But Mm. she's insecure about that beauty because she feels like it's a barrier that once people accept her beauty and get to know her, they're often less interested in her. So I think in her mind, Costas is spying on her because he's only interested in that physicality. Yes. And she takes that very personally because, of course, she already didn't want to be set up with him like her grandmother intended. And then to find out that he's spying on her naked body, it unravels her and she needs to process this idea like, not only do I need to get over this barrier, but also I need to like speak my truth. Yes. And I think she is contrasted against her sister Effie in all of these ways because Effie is much plainer than Lena. People want to know Lena because of her beauty, but Lena always feels like they're disappointed once they actually get to know her. Whereas Effie expands to take up space and is passionately loved by all who encounter her Mm -hmm. and is frankly a much more fun character to read about. (laughs) She really is, but I think it's because they're being contrasted, right? Yes, yeah. You see the potential that Lena could have if only she could adopt some of Effie's characteristics. Exactly. And yes, it's weird to have another Effie so close to the last Effie. Right? (laughs) (laughs) There's only so many names in YA, apparently. So those are the four narratives. They're all tied together by this pair of pants that Carmen buys. They're magic pants. Carmen buys them at a used clothing store when she's shopping, I think, with Tibby's family. Uh, Tibby and her mom? Anyway, I don't remember. Um, But she tries them on and she kind of forgets about them. And then when they're all packing to leave, they all end up trying on the pants and discovering that... (gasps) They all fit mm-hmm. amazing. And so they make a deal that the pants will travel among all the friends. Each friend will get the pants twice over the course of the summer. Yep. And when they send the pants on to the next person, they have to detail what happened when they were wearing the pants. And so mm-hmm. the pants become a significant set piece. Carmen is wearing the pants when she finally confronts her dad. Bridget is wearing the pants when she goes to find Eric. Tibby is wearing the pants when the worst happens to Bailey. And Lena is wearing the pants when she gets up the nerve to confess to her grandmother. So the pants are sort of this physical representation of friendship that allows the girls to be stronger than they would be without them. Right. And that's basically the book. I will say one of the things I liked about the pants, because going into it, I understood that it was going to be primarily realist. And then there's a magical touch with these pants that fits all four of them. Mm -hmm. And what I kind of liked about it is I thought that the pants were going to solve all of their problems every time they put them on. And I thought about how boring that was going to be. So I really appreciated that it actually takes the two rounds that they each have the pants. So each time they first put on the pants. They screw something up. Yeah, they really flub it. <laughs> well, they do They do something either bold or out of character, but that makes things worse. So yes, Carmen's wearing the pants when she throws the rock through her dad's window. I don't think I mentioned her dad has basically started a new family. Yeah. And he doesn't tell her. So she gets off the plane and he's like, hey, we're driving to my new house. This is my fiance. This is the Elizabeth Acevedo story, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) These are my two adopted teen kids. I never talk to you about anything, but I'm up in their lives (laughs) 24-7. Yeah, and they're white and perfect, and I've adopted religion, and I live in the suburbs. It's so gross. It's so gross. All these things that Carmen wanted from her relationship with her dad, like to have him convert to Catholicism like her and her mom, he won't do it for them, but he does it for the new wife. The Mm. way in which she already feels out of place because she looks so puerto rican and her dad is apparently bradley whitford yeah 
<laughs> is like torturous to her and then she sees him with these perfect blonde children and she sort of ends yeah. up running away and then no one comes to look for her so she's uh, spying on the family from the window and she sees them saying grace and she loses Mind. it completely and throws a rock <laughs> through the window and makes sure her dad sees it was her before taking off even then he doesn't he come doesn't, after her he she takes her... the bus back home and he doesn't follow up like he calls but that's not enough for me he lets her take a night bus <laughs> Uh, bad dad award if there were awards for bad parenting he would be near the top it's so bad and it's so tragic to me because she worships him and at one point her mother finally says to her like you need to express how you feel and she's like i talk to him all the time and she's like "Mm, like you talk to me (laughs) yeah exactly like it's easier and she her mom points this out right it's easier to be angry at someone who you trust not to leave and she doesn't trust her dad not to leave so she's been repressing all these feelings about him oh i thought the movie did that so well and it made me so mad (laughs) i want to talk at length about the film okay good (laughs) yeah so i do think it's interesting i'm having a difficulty processing exactly why and i'm hoping maybe you can help me to unpack it but the stories that i alluded to that i connected with the most were bridget and lena in oh the really book, and then it flipped in the film That's so i actually enjoyed carmen and tibby's stories more and i think part of it is that there's a bit of a sad sackness to the stories in carmen and tibby in the book mm. I think they're more mundane because the travel isn't rich and vibrant, like it's Mm -hmm. less fish out of water, Mm -hmm. but also because I find, I mean, obviously I understand where Carmen is coming from, but I find her mildly insufferable as a character because she refuses, like her issue is that she cannot talk to her father. It's so frustrating. And it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And Tibby's (laughs) issue is very similar, right? She feels completely silent. So I didn't mention this before, but Tibby's, Tibby was like the child of hippies, (laughs) <laughs> who were sort of like bohemian and they took her with them everywhere and they're the youngest of all the parents and then when tibby was in her early teen years her parents all of their friends started having kids and so they had two more kids and tibby feels very much like she was the practiced <laughs> and these kids are these babies are like the ones who are being raised with like all the fancy baby stuff and all the fancy baby classes and her parents are suddenly interested in material goods in a way that they weren't when she was little mm-hmm. so in both cases we have girls who they feel like they've been silenced by the structure of their families changing in ways they aren't given agency over right but In both cases, they are really frustrating because they don't do anything about it, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's where, for me, that's where the frustration comes from. It's like, okay, yes, you've been silenced and yes, you've been sidelined, but you don't have to silence and sideline yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because you could argue that Lena's storyline is also about silencing yourself, but because that's her primary issue, I was almost more forgiving of it. Well, you can see the arc coming and how she's going to get out of it. And also, you're not wrong. Like, the beautiful descriptions of both Greece and Baja are mm. really helpful to those narratives. <laughs> and maybe maybe this was my self-isolation talking <laughs> where I thought, you know what? It would be lovely to go to Greece right now. Seriously. Or to Baja, Mexico. But I think it's also just they're less conventional. Like, I know that you said that you were attracted to the realism of these particular quote-unquote low-stakes narratives. And maybe it's just because the Lena and the Bridget storylines are just one step above those. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It totally makes sense. It's funny because there were two points in the narrative where I was like, really? And one of them is like, (laughs) really? Summer soccer camp in Mexico? Really? Like, that's a good idea? (laughs) That was my first. Seemed a little odd. Extremely hot. And my second one was at the end of the book when Lena's like, "Okay, cool. Uh, Effie, you head back to America on your own. I'm going to take a quick stop in Mexico to pick up Bridget." I was like, "Absolutely not." No. What? Bridge people problems? A. B. That's not a thing. Teenagers don't just rebook tickets. (laughs) Like what? And not at 15. You're an unaccompanied minor. Yeah, you actually can't do anything with your ticket as an unaccompanied minor. Especially when it's like, I've got money, and Effie just says, oh, I've got 200 extra dollars I didn't spend here, just take it. Like, oh, no, I think they're going to say, hi, can we see a parental credit card? Because no. Yeah, you're not just going to change your ticket with cash at the airport at 15, Mm-mm. even when this book was published. Oh, actually, this is an interesting aside, Joe. Do you I- know what day this book came out? I do not know. Oh, no. Yep. Oh, September 11th. It did come out September 11th, and I'm fascinated by that because... 
this is going to sound flippant and I don't mean it to, but we lost a lot of good books in September of 2011 <laughs> because people couldn't go on book tours. Mm -hmm. The same thing that's happening now with COVID, right? I was right? going to say, oh, are we just making parallels yeah. to the situation that we're in right now? Yeah. Yeah. Because tragedy immediately disrupts practices like normality. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by the fact that this book made it through. I think part of it is because it is so... It's very gentle and the problems yes. are at a human scale. And I can see why I loved this book when I was 19 and everything else about the world was on fire. Right. Yeah. This is escapism. Yeah. But as you said, in the gentlest of terms, right? Yeah. It's not the kind of escapism like we might find in a dystopian text, for example, where you're thinking, oh, well, this is just a different kind of garbage fire. Are you still there? I am. Sorry, I was swallowing. <laughs> I muted the mic and then I was like, oh, I guess I should unmute the mic and talk. Yeah, so I'm. it is interesting that of all the books that got published that month, like Douglas Copeland had a book that came out that day as well. There's a really interesting amount of research that's been written about the publishing industry in that period. Because not only, not only was everything disrupted, but the epicenter obviously of 9-11 was New York, which is also the epicenter of American publishing. So it's not just like, oh, out of respect, we're not going to put on a book tour. It's like, oh, no, our office is closed, physically closed. Yes. Like, we can't go to it. <laughs> we literally can't get into it because it's cordoned off. And like, yes, we had internet in 2001, but it was not the same sort of established work from home parameters for most industries that we're, we were, mm -hmm. we've been able to pivot into. So I think about it a lot. I think about what it was about this book that... People still found it, in spite of all those things, found it enough to warrant four sequels and two films. Yeah. And I think it really does. There's something simple, sweet, human scale, kind. Like this book is in many ways about kindness, about learning to be kind to yourself, about mm -hmm. learning to prioritize the feelings of other people. Yes. Things that I think were very, very attractive to all of us in those immediate first days. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And... I do think it helps to almost contextualize the book in a different kind of light, right? Like it really captures the power that a book can have, not just as a form of escape from the real world, but also something that can allow you to negotiate complex emotions. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking of the number of books that we've talked about where people have said, I have a strong nostalgic attachment to this, or this was a book that got me through a rough time. And I just think this is the power of different types of mediums, right? Like this is one of the reasons why I love thinking about books and movies as cultural artifacts mm -hmm. because they don't just get birthed into the world and sit there. People have to engage with them to give them power. I um I agree with you completely. We put so much faith in the stories that carry us through too, right? And the they become significant touchstones in our lives. I think for a lot of millennial women, this book in particular filled that rule. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think one of the things I'd like to hear from listeners is if you were a millennial or if you are female identifying, did you connect with these girls on that kind of emotional level? Like, mm -hmm. did you look at them as sisters? Did you, did you crave the kind of female friendship and the life lessons and the gentle emotionality of it? And then alternatively, if you were a boy, if you are a boy, <laughs> mm -hmm. if you self-identify as a man, did you connect with this text or did you just say, oh, this is not for me? I'd be interested to know that too. I definitely think like this book is fairly white. Yes. Definitely very middle class, mm -hmm. very straight and extreme yeah. in its ableism. So I definitely don't want to pretend like this is a universal story that everyone loved. But I think a lot of middle class white women did yeah. really connect to this book. Yeah. If there was a white teen girl book club, this was probably at the top of the reading list. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things is, and and maybe people who have read the whole series, or Brenna, if you manage to remember, it'd be interesting to know if the books acknowledge the whiteness, the heteronormity, mm -hmm. the class and ableist issues, like, as the girls get older, and as the author herself becomes probably more aware of these issues, or the, the landscape changes, I'd be interested to know if the books begin to reflect that. Yeah, you know, I honestly don't remember. 
and I read Sisterhood Everlasting relatively recently, and I don't remember being struck by anything, but I mean, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I wouldn't put much stock in that. I'd need to, I'd need to revisit the series, and I think I want to. I enjoyed being back in that sort of nostalgic space, even as I was being more critical of certain aspects of the narrative. Mm-hmm. I, I almost love the opportunity that the podcast has afforded us to revisit particularly books that we already had a past relationship with and be able to say, okay, here's my nostalgic lens. And then here's also my critical adult lens. And sometimes they overlap. And other times you're thinking, oh, wow, okay, I have some opposing work to do here. Yep, it's very true. It's true. (laughs) Did you know that this book was at the middle of a plagiarism scandal? What? Yeah. (laughs) No, clearly I did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this book was published by Alloy Books. And Alloy Books has a very... I would say, strange and untransparent structure. Okay. Where editors often pitch story ideas and then the company oh, goes out and seeks mm-hmm. people to write the texts and then the editors are given small financial bonuses. Mm, can't see why that would cause a problem. <laughs> yeah, for most of the books, it's been like, whatever, you know, the bonus versus the amount the book sold. Meh, right? Mm-hmm. But in the case of this book... Jody Anderson and Amber Shares were, as I understand it, both editors working at Alloy at the time. Okay. And the idea was definitely pitched by Jody Anderson because it was based on her own college experience of a group of friends who shared one pair of jeans. Okay. Um, and so she had written a proposal sketching out the idea, and she thought that that meant that she would get to write the book. But mm. then she didn't. Right. Amber Share. I think she had a more like a leadership position at the company. Oh she decided to write the book instead. And Jody Anderson was given a cash bonus of, I think, $2,000. Oh, pennies. <laughs> yeah, and promoted from assistant editor to editor. Okay. And she's not happy about it. Um, right. Lots of people who worked within the alloy structure have said, like, we knew what this was when we were hired. We knew it was a bit of a idea mill and that authors would run with ideas that they may not, may or may not have generated themselves. Uh, I, I hate that kind of corporate obedience. Yeah. You I, don't have to toe that line because it's bull. I know. So Jody Anderson has said, no, not the case. And she has since left the company. Um, okay. But one thing is that she actually asked for story credit when she found out about the movie because she was like okay you you can't go back and give me credit on the books but you could give me original story credit on the movie adaptations Mm -hmm. and she was told to stop living in the past oh wow that is helpful yeah great yeah and so jody anderson has said you know that she actually really loved working with amber share she learned a lot from her but that she's super not okay with how everything went down about the traveling pants it is worth noting that uh, she's like the first person in the acknowledgments. Brashers okay. does like acknowledge her. So it's not like anybody, I don't think anybody has tried to pretend that she wasn't the originator of the concept, mm-hmm. but she was absolutely not compensated for that. Yeah. And that's got to suck too when you then see sequel after sequel and film yeah. after film and just think, yep, that's still mine. And yeah. nope, I'm still not getting the credit. Yeah. This all came to light again, oh, a few years back when a book called how Opal Meta got kissed, got wild, and got a life. Okay. Was a big, like, holy cow, YA title. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly disappeared. And it was all over a intellectual property dispute that was rooted at the core of Alloy. And I think part of it for Alloy has been complexity in negotiating how publishing for YA has changed. Because Alloy mm-hmm. is the house that used to make uh, the Sweet Valley High books. And Sweet right. Valley High books were a mill like (laughs) there was a staff of people writing them under francine pascal's name but i'm not sure how many francine pascal ever wrote right this actually reminds me of the discussion that we briefly had during the nancy drew i was gonna say yeah super similar to that right this idea that the house owns the concept yes and then they farm it out to different writers at different stages and so on yeah and i mean Mm -hmm. no one is ever suggesting that amber shares didn't write these books only that the concept was not initially hers But uh, yeah, it's just interesting how something that was sort of normal practice in young adult literature in the 80s is now like not. This is a no-fly zone. (laughs) And it's almost like Alloy has not kept up. Yeah. 
I mean, here's the thing. This is not a stagnant business, right? Like, as we've talked about, there's a need to move forward with the times and acknowledge that things are different. And sometimes that means content within the books. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means the type of authors that we're promoting and giving a voice to. Mm -hmm. And other times that means like, okay, how is our content mill? Yes. (laughs) Publishing books. Yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay, well, shall we transition over to the film? Yes, please. All right. We were best friends and about to spend our first summer apart. How about the sweaters? <laughs> but a pair of pants Ta-da! would keep us together. You think that a pair of jeans that fits all three of you is going to fit all of this? This summer, we'll share them equally and they'll travel among us. I think she's getting too much sun. <laughs> have been wrong about the pants. The one time I wore them, I almost drowned. I don't speak Greek. We'll have to work on that, won't we? Maybe you need an assistant. Look, I have my own friends. Even though they left me here to rot this summer, I'm not looking for any new ones. Bill Gates, he ran a lemonade stand. You don't know that. Yeah, I do. I read it in a magazine. Where, what, where did you read that? In a magazine. It's against the rules to have flings with the coaches. Pick it up! Hi. Hi. I play for it. So I've noticed. I haven't spent more than four straight days with you since I was ten. Who is that? Your neighbor? Actually, I have a surprise for you. We're getting married. Oh dear, we can dig up some extra fabric. Just tell everybody that Carmen's Puerto Rican. But unlike you and your daughter, she has a booty! So a mere four years later, we get the film adaptation of The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. This is co-written by two different women. One is Delia Efron, a.k.a. sister of Nora, the filmmaker who did a bunch of romantic comedies. She's kind of a powerhouse in terms of female directors because she made hits. So I was interested to see her sister's name on this. I was intrigued too. I was going to ask you if there was a connection. Obviously there is. Yeah. <laughs> and the other writer is a woman named Elizabeth Chandler, who I was not familiar with. And I looked over her IMDb page, and she's responsible for this and the sequel. But she also did, you know, A Little Princess and What a Girl Wants. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she's familiar with... I was going to say, those are some chops. Yeah. What I did not understand is the inclusion of male director Ken Quapis. Not because he's not talented. He's got a fairly extensive filmography, but it's mostly in television. Mm -hmm. But this, to me, is the 2005-ness of it all. Because there's absolutely no reason why this film couldn't and shouldn't have been directed by a woman. Yes, Because even if you're being one of those annoying misogynist people and saying, oh, well, women can't direct big budget films or action films or something like that, even if you're that kind of dick, this film doesn't qualify because this is a small, intimate, female-driven film. Like, I don't know why they couldn't have gone after any number of female directors, but that's the difference between 2005 and 2020. Yep. Yeah, so uh, I think for a lot of people, the cast is where the magic happens for this film. And this is fascinating to me because obviously I recognize all four of these actresses. But what's intriguing is what time this film is made at the different points of career. So we've got Amber Tamblyn as Tibby, and she is coming off of Joan of Arc. No, Joan of Arcadia. Yeah, I was going to say, a little different. little different. (laughs) I mean, same kind of idea. Talk to God. This is before she inexplicably marries David Cross. Let's not. (laughs) and then of course we've got alexis bladell who has been in gilmore girls so the two of them were the big names in this film at the time because they had had these established tv properties for years and years before this well if i'm not mistaken this is like the only feature that alexis bladell made during gilmore girls which i've always found kind of baffling uh, I mean, it's a really rigorous TV schedule, particularly when you're going back at that time, because those are like 24 episode seasons. Right, that's so true. it's exhausting. Right. She just may not have been offered gigs, or she may have been doing theater work or some other mm, stuff like that. Mm, mm. 
And then, of course, we've got our two exciting, fresh newcomers, Brenna. We've got America Ferreira as Carmen, and she would, of course, the next year begin making Ugly Betty, which literally changed the face of television by Mm -hmm. giving a Hispanic woman a leading role. Like, it hadn't happened in ages, and it was a big, splashy ABC show. And I just think she brings Carmen to life. Oh, okay. So she actually got highlighted for a number of emerging newcomer, best newcomer kind of awards at like various teen award shows. Mm. And to me, Carmen is the revelation in the film. America Mm -hmm. Ferreira is amazing in this role. Mm -hmm. She's so fantastic. She's so good. And then, of course, the final member of our foursome is a little actress named Blake Lively, who had not done anything and was (laughs) literally one year away also from going on to star in Gossip Girl. Incidentally, Gossip Girl was also an Alloy publishing title. Oh, oh, God, that makes so much sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So rounding out the cast, we have Jenna Boyd as Bailey. It's very odd to look at what she looks like in the film and what she looks like now. (laughs) And then uh, we've got Bradley Whitford as Carmen's father, Al, and Nancy Travis as Lydia, who is the woman that Al will marry. Mm -hmm. I think the only other real significant member of note is Micah Vogel, who plays Eric, that is Bridget's wannabe boyfriend guy at the soccer camp. And Mm -hmm. of course, he's gone on to be in a number of movies and television shows. I guess I could also highlight that Costas is played by Michael Rady, and he is not just Canadian, but he also appears in a number of Hallmark Christmas movies, Brenna. <laughs> and I think it's worth saying, Brian is is an Asian character in this film version. Brian is one of the losers from Tibby's film, who she ends yes. up sort of falling for. And it's he's played by Leonardo Nam, who's been in a bunch of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. He was in Tokyo Drift and a, and a few other things. Yeah, I think a lot of people would recognize him from Westworld. He's one of the uh, technicians yeah, yeah, yeah. in that. Yeah. But it's interesting because in the book, there's almost suggestions that he could be a love interest for Bailey if she survived. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film, he's aged up and it seems like they're suggesting that he might be a love interest for Tibby. He is in the books too. I think in the second book, they get together. Oh, weird okay he's 16 okay yeah i don't know why i read him as younger then (laughs) well because all he does is play video games and he never opens his mouth otherwise maybe that's it yeah and i think also because he's much quicker to bond with bailey like he he visits bailey in the hospital long before tibby gets up the nerve too for example Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. he definitely seems closer to her in the first book yeah so a couple of fairly significant changes in the film basically lena's storyline is completely different And worse, it's worse. <laughs> oh, dear. So rather than have Costas accidentally spy on her, we can have this, you know, comedy of errors where she can't say anything to protect his reputation. In this case, we just have feuding families. So Costas is from a family that Lena's grandmother and grandfather do not get along with. And as a result, she is forbidden to see him. But of course, they start an illicit romance instead, because you just can't fight that connection. It's a very cardboard version of Greek life, I think. Yeah, this felt like the Greek tourism board paid for part of the film budget, (laughs) and let's have lots of gorgeous pictures. The part that wasn't being paid for by FedEx and Herbal Uh, Essences. Oh, oh my. (laughs) I mean, I see the opportunities for a promotional tie-in. I'm not even joking when I say that sometimes films do cover part of their budget. Oh, yeah. Michael Bay's entire filmography. It just, it feels so obviously shoehorned. And particularly Lena's story is like, I could not have cared about this in the film. Yeah, it's bad. Like, it's boring. It's very, as I say, cardboard. And like, what is the growth she's experiencing here? It's that she has a first love, and that's it. And that's it, and it's... Yeah, I didn't like this it. This is boring. We it's have seen this boring. a million times before. I think the novelty was meant to be that she's an American who falls in love with a foreign guy. P.S. She's not even remotely Greek-ish looking. No. no. Michael Rady is not even remotely Greek-ish looking. No. This is really horrible casting, and I think... Yeah. Sorry if I offend anybody, but I think Alexis Bledel is horribly miscast in this, and she's yep. kind of terrible. Yep. Yep. It's, um, it's really, she's very much been typecast from yeah, her Yeah, this is Rory Gilmore, Gilmore goes to Greece. 
it's Rory Gilmore goes to Greece without Rory's Mm self-confidence. Like Rory is shy and bookish, but Rory has a mind of her own and she acts on things. This is like all of the staying at home and being quiet of Rory (laughs) with Mm -hmm. none of the kind of internal strength. It's boring. Yeah, I was just so frustrated, I think, from the moment that Bladeau opens her mouth because her line delivery is so meek and whispery and quiet. And I knew what they were going for, you know, oh, Lena's shy, she's introverted, but this is near comatose. Yep. I just could not understand the decisions that were made around this character, this storyline, this actress. Yep, agree. Agreed, Which is agreed, disappointing. Agreed. So that that's one of the reasons why I was like, Lena in the book, but not Lena in the film. Yeah. And then I think the other significant change is in Bridget's storyline. I think another reason why they kind of change it. So in the book, there's this illicit romance. So Eric is meant to be 19. She's 15 and lying and saying she's 17. So there's an uncomfortable age difference and... Part of this is that Bridget understands that she shouldn't be pursuing him, but she wants him, and therefore she must have him. And of course, as you alluded to, Brenna, this is all about her risk-taking and her acting out, and you know she's secretly working through her issues about her mother. So in the film, they don't have a sexual relationship. They share a kiss, and it drives Bridget away from her camp so the girls don't go to help support her. She just comes home, and then Eric shows up and does the same kind of, mm, you'll grow up, and maybe you'll think of me when it's a little bit more reasonable to think that we could get together. But really, she actually has a breakdown and talks about how she thinks it might have something to do with her mom, and it's mm-hmm. much more cathartic in that way. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I don't want to say that I liked the illicit romance part of the book, but there was something interesting in the way I think Bridget herself is the most compelling of the four because she is so driven. Like she is the girl who has agency, whereas the rest of them are really struggling with that. And I was really attracted to this idea that this girl literally cannot help herself from going after things she wants too aggressively. And that was fascinating as a female character in a YA book because we don't often see it. And Carmen tells us that too, right? Carmen's like, everyone is sort of magnetized by Bridget. It's funny because often in books when you get told that, it's by the character who's like, you're like, what? (laughs) But in this case, it's actually really true. She is magnetizing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the film, I mean, I think Blake Lively is doing a reasonable job. I've never found Blake Lively the most compelling actress. She's extremely blonde. She's extremely blonde, so she does have that hair that everyone Mm -hmm. always wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. I struggled to find her convincing as a soccer athlete. She has a very awkward run to me Mm -hmm. in the film, Mm -hmm. which kind of took me out of it a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think the stakes are just not there in the film. And I think I might have missed it, but it really felt like we didn't get as much insight about her relationship with her dead mother until Mm -hmm. she has that breakdown at the end. So it felt like it came out of nowhere. I agree. I think in the book, you get this much stronger sense that she is hurtling towards something with Eric that she doesn't fully understand, Mm -hmm. that she feels like she is being compelled to act the way she is. Yeah. And that doesn't come through in the film at all. In the film, honestly, they just kind of make her seem like real, real slutty. Yeah. You know, which is fine, except that then the arc doesn't make any sense. No. I think especially in the book, because I actually found it to be Amber Shear's most fascinating piece of writing, is that there's all the implications that she and Eric have sex, but it's never said explicitly. And I really liked that suggesting without telling, and just what it opens up in Bridget in terms of, I thought this is what I wanted, and then I got it, and I realized I'm actually a mess now. Because I feel like, especially for people who are initiating or exploring sexuality for the first time, Mm -hmm. that's a really common thing where you think, yeah, I just want to do this. I want to get it over with. I want to feel differently. And then you have it and you realize, no, I was actually not ready for this. And I don't know how to process it. Yeah, absolutely. So to not have that, to have everything culminate in a kiss in the film, I mean, I get it. You don't want to show underage girls getting preyed upon at soccer games. (laughs) That's a different movie. Yeah, I think that's even the difference that four years made between the book and the film. They were like, no, we cannot do this storyline. So they had to change it. But I, I just don't think they changed it for the better. No, I agree completely. I also found it not 
romantic when he shows up in her town. No. I was like, what are you doing here? This is creepy. It's so creepy. So at the end of the film, her dog goes running out the front door. Ugh. The dog who didn't matter. They didn't exist until anyway, whatever. Movie magic. <laughs> the dog goes, like grabs the pants and goes running out of the house and then takes the pants to Eric, who is inexplicably like two streets over. Yeah. It's just weird. Just what, lurking a couple blocks away in the hedges? Yeah, and you're not like, oh, that's romantic. You're like, why, why is this grown man mm -hmm. stalking this teenager? Yeah. No, it's icky. And then being like, I'll be hot for you when you're 21? Yeah. Cool. No, just don't, cool, cool, don't cool. Do that. Don't, do that. don't do that. Don't. But thankfully, we do have these other two storylines. <laughs> and I really felt like they managed to capture what is so effective about the storylines for Tibby and particularly Carmen. Mm -hmm. I don't love Amber Tamblyn. I think she's fine. She's appropriately sullen. I feel like they're trying a little bit too desperately to say, oh, she's edgy. She wears black. She has a streak in her hair. Like, mm -hmm. it feels very 2005. It's so 2005. <laughs> but it's also highly relatable. Like, yeah. she remains a highly relatable character because she is just, she's working this dead-end job. Everybody's kind of a loser. Yep. And I think she has to realize she's also a bit of that loser. I think the one thing that I didn't love about this is that Bailey literally tells her. Yes. Like she delivers the line that suggests that Tibby has grown. So in the book, Tibby makes the realization, oh, you know what? I don't need to have these big things. Life is actually just people living for small pleasures and finding amazingness in that. Whereas in the film, they have Bailey tell that to her. Yes. Well, because that's Bailey's role. It is amped up even more as like magical cancer girl in the mm -hmm. film. Yeah, it's a lot. And I, I think if the two actresses weren't so hugely compelling, and I mean, yeah, we alluded to it, hugely emotionally manipulative. Yeah. Particularly that scene where Tibby finally breaks down and says, you know, please take the pants, get better, don't mm -hmm. die, don't stop fighting. And you're just thinking, oh my gosh, none of us want Bailey to die. Bailey yeah. is adorable. Yeah. You know, it's hugely problematic. It's very emotionally ma manipulative. And it's also incredibly effective. Yep. <laughs> yep, I cried. Yeah, May have gotten a little watery-eyed. Yep. And then we have Carmen. Brenna, what did you think of this storyline? I love slash hated this storyline. Okay. <laughs> I loved it because everybody is so good at it. And it, to me, it's the most passionately infuriating storyline of the film. Okay. Carmen is so looking forward to spending time with her dad. And she has all these things she wants to do with him. Like the things that are just her and her dad stuff mm -hmm. that she only gets to do like six days a year and now she's gonna spend the whole summer with him and it's gonna be great and then he's like hey what's up this is my whole new family <laughs> that moment where they're driving down oh the my road god and she's so excited and the camera's just tight on america ferrera's face as she's talking about you know we're gonna do tennis and it's gonna be so great where are we what is this who is that woman <laughs> it hurts my feelings <laughs> i just love it I love yeah. these moments in the book, and yeah. I really love the moments in the film. I love Bradley Whitford as Spineless Dad. I love He's him. He's so effective as Spineless Dad. I hate him so much, and I love him. He's so effective. Yes. Yeah, this relationship they have together where she can't ever express anger because she doesn't believe he'll stick around, and she fears so much disappointing him, right? Like, mm -hmm. she's performing her love for him all the time. Like, even the fact that she doesn't open her report card, even though she knows she got straight A's, until she gets into his car because she wants him to see it with her. And, like, yeah. he just has no idea how, how much she misses him. Mm -hmm. He has no idea. I just thought it was... um just brilliantly done really really effective yeah. and the scene where she throws the rock through the window really at their good. stupid perfect it's faces so good. is so good <laughs> it's almost like a tablet like a norman rockwell yes here is a white middle class boring perfection of like what you think a family yep. should be and then here's this poor person of color girl on the outside and the shot where you see his face through the cracked window, looking at her. Ah, it's so good. The other scene I love with America Ferrera in this movie, and I loved it in the book too, but she gets more, she has more spunk in the movie, mm -hmm. is when she's trying on the bridesmaid's dress. Yeah. So first of all, I have to say shout out to my old hometown, New Westminster, <laughs> because the quote unquote Charleston Bridal Gallery 
is the bridal gallery that's like a block south of the college where I used to work. Yep, this is our CanCon connection. Mm -hmm. That and also they had to reshoot a bunch of the soccer scenes. So they filmed the soccer stuff in Mexico. They filmed the Greek stuff first and then the Mexico stuff. And then they had to reshoot some of the Mexico scenes, the outdoor soccer playing scenes. And they shot those here in Kamloops where I live now because it's a desert. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. Um, so yeah, um, but that scene, she's she's trying on this dress and the bridal consultant is such a yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, I guess we're going to have to let it out here and here. And oh, I hope I have more fabric. And oh you know, usually gosh. a sample size is a decent place to start, but your giant butt not going to work. And I'm just like dying. And America yeah. Ferrera actually gets to like respond in that scene in a way that Carmen in the book bottles up she just takes it in the book yeah she just takes it in the book and i loved hearing her voice her absolute disgust Mm -hmm. so one of the things we've not talked about is the fact that this other family that al the bradley whitford character in the film they're not bad people no not mean to her they're actually trying their best or what they think is appropriately their best so they've made her the exact dress that the stepdaughter is going to be wearing at the wedding Without yes. thinking for a second that maybe this girl might not be the exact same size as your stick insect. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But that's how that's how Carmen reads it, right? She's right. like, cool, everyone in this family is blonde and slim, and I am built like my Puerto Rican mother, mm-hmm. and never occurred to any of you people that we wouldn't fit into the same pink shift dress. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... It's fascinating that we don't have an evil stepmother situation, because that's honestly how I thought this was going to go. This entire story is about Carmen and her father. Yes. She misdirects a lot of her anger at this new family because she doesn't know how to process the feelings that she has for her dad. Mm -hmm. And I like that in the scene you're referencing in the bridal gown, she doesn't do what she does in the book, where she takes it out on Lydia and tells her, you know, like, oh, you're too old, your arms are too fat to be wearing an off-the-shoulder dress. And The wedding dress is ridiculous in the movie, though, by the way. Oh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) As wedding dresses so often are. Oh, my God. She looks like she is just draped in... Like, my cat has taken to shredding the toilet paper rolls lately, and (laughs) she looks like she's draped in what he leaves behind when he's finished. (laughs) Just strips and strips and strips of that. And white poofs as far as the eye could see. Anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Yes, you're right. She doesn't take it out on Lydia. Yeah, she takes it out instead on this this woman. Who is horrible. By the way, how do you work in a bridal store and talk to people like that? I mean, I guess you're expecting to only have to interact with white people. Yeah. Yeah, I will say that I'm sure it's watching movies like this in my early 20s that led me to plan a wedding that required me to not step into a single bridal store at any point in the journey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Weddings. Good times. Weddings. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any final thoughts or do you want to proceed into YA bingo? I think we should do YA bingo, but I don't have the card open, so give me a second. Bingo! Not a good bingo. I know you just tweeted it. There it is. Okay. 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 What have you got? Um, I think we have rich people problems. Mm-hmm. So A, everything that Lydia feels about the wedding is rich people problems, like beginning to end. Right. Yeah. When they can't get married at the plantation of their choosing, by oh, the way. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. And also, as I already alluded to, the plane ticket thing Mm -hmm. at the end of the book that is just incoherent yeah nobody's hurting for money in either Mm. of these two texts no even carmen like carmen makes the point of telling us that her mom makes a butt ton of money so like i guess we're supposed to not even think about class or the class difference between what her father is setting up as a Mm -hmm. life with this other family and her but i don't understand that choice yeah, there's a brief mention that Tibby has to work there because she needs to earn money, but you get the impression that it's more like this is the only place that would hire her because she has a bad attitude. Yeah, and also it's more like uh, my parents are making me have this job to learn a work ethic because what? the family is clearly wealthy. That's one of her complaints about mm-hmm. the life that they've chosen with the new kids. Yeah, because the dad's working all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dead parents? Yep. Mm-hmm. We've got an unlikely friendship, obviously, between Bailey and Tibby. Mm-hmm. And also between Tibby and Brian. Right, yeah. Um, we got a sexual awakening. Mm-hmm. For Several of for them, worse. depending on if you want to think of the movie or the book. Yeah. We've got some CanCon setting. Yes. Haven't been able to use that one in a while, so that's no, good. No, yeah. And it's it was so funny because I'm um 
I'm the best at willing suspension of disbelief. Like I've been sitting in movie theaters and Devin has leaned over to me and been like, that's a block from your work. And I've been like, what? Because I just don't <laughs> notice. But this was like, that bridal store is like on the main drag in New West. I could not miss it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Also, speaking of Kamloops, the desert, they shot the new Jurassic World here because apparently dinosaurs in the desert. Very much a Kamloopsian situation. Yeah. Spoiler alert. I know. I know. Hot off the presses. They uh, were staying at the fancy hotel downtown and it was like the talk of my office. (gasps) Oh my. (laughs) Um, I think that's... Is that it? I feel like that's it. I have so much more. Okay, Okay, go. Go. (laughs) Okay. I'm maybe being a little generous, but I'm going to say, you know, Bradley Whitford, he, I believe, was known for West Wing by this point. And yes, West Wing was in its hot period in 2005. So, yes. Okay. So I'm saying that's fair. casting for him. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit of musicality, and you can fight me on this, but the film is literally filled with what Brian called white girl music. It is. It's the 2005-iest ever, too. Yeah. yeah. All I could say was, oh, was Vanessa Carlton not a thing? Because she should 100% be in here. Yeah, she should have been. Uh, I, I realized that when the entire beach running montage is to um, Unwritten, of all things. Mm-hmm. Of course oh, it Natasha Bedingfield. Mm-hmm. Where have you been? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is also a nice callback to our hilarious pocket full of sunshine discussion from Easy A back in the day. <laughs> I'm going to go with a little bit of mediocre white boy action just because of... Eric? Eric and a little bit of Paul. Oh, yeah, that's fair. I'm sensing that Paul will become a bigger character in successive books. Mm-hmm. But even for just this one, it's kind of like he's such a nothing character to the point I just kept wondering why he was in there. I love it because he basically says three things in the whole book. And of course, they're all like perfect. <laughs> yeah. And his hair in the film is one of the most atrocious things I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Correct. We've got perfect date for all of our Greek adventures in the film. Oh, that's fair. Okay. And finally, I'm going to say... When you bring your daughter to meet your new family for the summer and surprise wedding and you don't tell her anything, that's gaslighting. That is gaslighting. Yeah. Yeah. So that is what I've got. Unfortunately, we did not make a line. We did not, but we enjoyed ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) And the real lesson is the friendships we developed along the way. Right. And I can't believe that these pants fit me as well as they fit you, Brenna. <laughs> That's a piece of hell of a pants, Joe. <laughs> Short shorts? No. <laughs> One of us has birthed a child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see what that has to do with anything. <laughs> Neither does Hollywood. All, All right. right. Well, before we talk about where we're going next, Brenna, how do people get a hold of us? Okay, so if you want to tell me about your nostalgic experience with Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Mm -hmm. and only that, uh, you can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you to share their Alexis Bledel fan fiction? Oh, goodness me. You can find me (laughs) at B. Still My Remote, and that's the letter B. And if you want to get both of us on Twitter, it's hashtag HKHSpod, or for longer content, send us an email, HKHSpod at Mm gmail.com. Keep the Minnesota ideas coming by the way. Yeah, we are good for the next couple of Minnesota rounds. But of course, if there's pressing topics or things that people really want us to cover, do let us know. Because Mm -hmm. if not, it's just us programming apparently a lot of YA television to come, Brenna. Yes. Which is also my segue. I was actually (laughs) gonna say, like, this is something we do need you for, is if something appears on your Netflix and we haven't talked about it yet, it might be that it's not appearing on our Netflix. So let us know if there's something you want us to cover in a mini-sode that you've uh, you've seen on the streamers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That cues us up nicely. So for next week's mini-sode, as we come back, we're gonna have uh, some homework updates, but also we are going to... Check out a show that I publicly admonished when it first came out because I think the marketing really missold it. In your defense, the trailer was extremely bad. It was extremely bad. I think they released a second one that people said did a better job of encapsulating it. But since I realize we've not said what we're talking about, going to be checking out Mindy Kaling's Netflix series, Never Have I Ever. I'm excited. Yeah, so Brenda, you requested this one because we had heard a ton of really good things about it. Yes. And it's dipping back into this subverting YA tropes by giving us a person of color and Mm -hmm. apparently being quite smart about it. 
Yes, I'm really excited. I was so happy to hear it get good reviews because I, along with Joe, really thought it looked like trash. So mm-hmm. yay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now excited. I was previously not, but I'm getting back on board. So we will be doing that next week. And then if you want to get started on the next book, Brenna, I apologize in advance. This is a, We're going to be walk? checking out Artemis Fowl. Oh, I downloaded the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time for its uh, debut. It's not going to theaters anymore, folks. It's getting dumped onto Disney+. Plus. So, uh, Kenneth Branagh, show us what you've got. I believe it's pronounced Kenneth Branagh. (laughs) Yeah, well, after his last couple of movies. (laughs) So, yes. uh, So, get started reading. Famously brief and well-edited director Kenneth Branagh. goodness yeah so i feel like we're gonna have a lot to talk about because apparently there are some very significant differences between the book which is uh, published in 2001 and this new movie which has been long in the making so uh yeah so keep an eye out for that the film will be available on disney plus on june 12th so we'll be coming in hot just a couple days later exciting yeah that's one word for it You programmed this, my friend. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. So until next time, um, I shall see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Stay safe.